Welcome to the Arthroscopy Association's Arthroscopy Journal Podcast. I'm Dr. Travis Decker from Eglin Air Force Base. Today I'm talking to a dear friend and mentor of mine, Dr. Matthew Preventure, who truly needs no introduction. He's a world-renowned surgeon, innovator, and teacher, and he still remains a strong advocate and voice for sports surgeons throughout the Academy, the American Orthopedic Society Sports Medicine, the Arthroscopy Association North America, the American Shoulder and Elbow Society, and importantly, the Society of Military Orthopedic Surgeons. He is currently the fellowship director at the Stedman Clinic in Vail, and he remains a thought leader in both knee and shoulder procedures to include an innovative technique we will discuss today. Once again, I'll be focusing on classic articles within arthroscopy with a particular interest in advancement of surgical techniques and lessons learned. Welcome to the podcast, Dr. Preventures. I'm super excited and eager to learn more about your thought process, surgical indications, and technique modifications for distal tibia allograft for bone loss in the setting of anterior shoulder instability. We'll be reviewing the May 2017 arthroscopy article entitled Distal Tibia Allograft Glenoid Reconstruction in Recurrent Anterior Shoulder Instability, Clinical and Radiographic Outcomes. Dr. Preventure, thank you and congratulations on all your achievements and contributions and welcome to the podcast. Travis, thank you very much for the kind invitation. It's a great honor to join you today and really appreciate it. Honestly, it's been a great journey and and team effort to uh, have this fun project, I guess. Well, Dr. Dr. Preventure, can you start us off with kind of telling us how your whole thought process began and how did you think to use distal tibia allograft for anterior glenoid bone loss? Travis, when I think back now, it's it's a distant time period in my life in a way, but it's so interesting story when I, when I look back and, and how this all came about. So it was about 2006 and I was working with a good friend of mine, John Sakia, who was also in the military at the time. He was stationed at the Naval Academy. We were always trying to come up with better ways to graft the glenoid. Glenoid bone loss, back then, we were doing a lot of work in it. We were starting to really think about it, look at the imaging on it. And I think we were really ahead of the curve. There really wasn't much out there in glenoid bone loss and certainly no on track or off track. We were looking a little bit at Hill Sachs, but we didn't have the treatments besides really Latterjay, iliac crest, and then arthroscopic state of the art, which was becoming quite in vogue. But what we realized is that we needed bone reconstruction options. And I had asked some of the graft companies what we could do to get fresh glenoids. And the problem was it was really challenging to get them. And there were several reasons for that. First, the graft companies and the harvest of cadaver parts, if you will, is harder to do as you get more midline on the body. And it's not that it can't be done, but they're very hard. They were very hard to obtain. And actually they're still hard to obtain. And so getting the whole scapula and and the fresh glenoid and processing it it is just hard. And so there were uh, donor concerns, including uh, uh, casket viewings and, you know, cadaveric viewings after harvest and preserving the the wishes of the family. So that was one reason. Another reason is when you harvest close to the center core of the body, the infection risk goes up. And if you have a class three contamination, which is something like clostridium or some pretty bad organism, but the uh, bug contamination rate goes much higher when you're more closer to the core of the body, that that will invalidate all of the grafts obtained from a cadaver specimen. Sometimes there's 150 to 170 different lots or different 
packagings, if you will, just in musculoskeletal allografts provided from the donation of life. And so this was a clinical decision for them too, to make sure that the clinical gift of life, if you will, was preserved. And so basically I was frustrated. I said, oh, I'd love to have a fresh clone to be able to reconstruct this. I get it that it's hard, but I started asking questions. What else can we use and, and what else do you have? And a good friend of mine and colleague from San Diego who actually worked for one of the graphs company, uh, Alice Orson Joint Restoration Foundation came up to me and said, well, we're processing a lot of talus, but do you have any use for distal tibia? And I don't know what we could use it for. And I said, ding, 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 send that to me. And we started testing it in the lab in 2006 and did a lot of you know, matching studies, basic mechanics studies, uh, cartilage thickness studies, radius of curvature studies, mapping studies, all kinds of other things, as, as well as bone density, because we wanted to make sure that the bone was dense enough. And we found some pretty surprising results. I didn't know it was going to fit that well, but I, what it taught me was how well the body is conserved across joints in terms of how we are developed as humans, in terms of radius of curvature and other things. And these are laws of human nature. What, a, what an interesting process. And I, I know we had briefly spoken about that before, and it's a journey that the, the challenging military patients, I'm sure, forced you to accommodate and uh, to continue to get better. And uh, one thing that I've noticed in your article, and then uh, after training with you, that you mentioned that your indications at the time of the original article is that patients who had greater than 15% bone loss or those who had failed prior stabilization procedures to include ladder J. Have you modified any of your current indications now that you're more than a few years out of actually doing these in patients, especially of those in primary procedures versus those of revision DTAs? And also, who do you indicate now for a ladder J compared to a DTA? Yeah, Travis, all excellent questions. I think that bottom line is the indications continue to evolve. What's interesting is when I first did this clinically in the very first patient was late 2007. And just keep in mind, this is an FDA approved process using allografts in the body is FDA approved. So I didn't have to get clearance. We didn't have to go through 510K. This is something we could start right away. Uh, there's frankly a marketing claim as well because it's approved for allograft use um, in the body. So after that, I was really doing these initially for very large bone loss. We had a population in the military that never ceased to amaze me how many copers we had in shoulder instability. And guess what? When you cope and keep subluxating, keep dislocating, you get more glenoid bone loss. You get more hill sacs. That's been proven time and time again now with some really good articles. So we would see these bone losses of 30, 35, 40%. And although iliac crest was our workhorse, it didn't restore cartilage. Uh, the ladder J and the congruent arc technique that Joe DeBeer and Steve Burkhart taught us very well was also good. And we can get probably anywhere from 10 to 14 millimeters of glenoid reconstruction. And certainly that was good and good concavity measure, but you're also dealing with a much thinner coracoid on what to affix your screws to. So really I, I started using this for the bigger bone losses, 20, 25% above, even for primary. It also became a great workhorse for us for the failed ladder J as a great option for this. Many times the anterior glenoid has glad lesions, cartilage injuries with or without surgery and multiple instability events. And this was a nice way I thought to be able to reconstruct the cartilage. And we always had to know 
is this going to work and is the cartilage going to be restored? And we had a number of second looks in which this was well confirmed. The CT scans well confirmed our healing. I actually stopped the procedure uh, for two years just to see how that this was working right around 20, 10, 11 timeframe and collected a lot of data. Some of it also coincided with some deployments I had to go on in the military overseas. And so actually a nice natural break to kind of collect data and, and see if things were working. So the bottom line is I use it in general for large bone loss when it's not just a bone and cartilage problem, generally more than 20 to 25%. Failed ladder J. Younger patients, I think, works well, although my youngest, I think, is about 15 or 16 um, just because of allograft use. I don't know if I'm nervous about that or just somewhat of a limit of a cutoff of mine. And then uh, Latterge compared to DTA, that's continued to be a tricky one for me. I haven't done it in an F NFL player or a high-end contact athlete, but I've done this in major league baseball players, NHL players, uh, some others that are still pretty high-end contact, um, but I do think it represents a really nice uh, option to reconstruct the anatomy, especially if you're using anchors or sutures integrated to washers or other things to repair the front of the caps. And we found that to be a really nice augmentation after you reconstruct the glenoid anatomically. Well, you had just started mentioning some technical aspects of what you do and compared to this original technique that you described in this uh, 2017 article, have you started to perform these arthroscopically or have there been any other technical modifications that you've made to your technique that you've improved on over the course of the last 14, now almost 15 years that you've been doing this procedure? Yeah, Travis, I'm glad, glad you brought that up. The future is arthroscopic bone grafting, period. It's going to happen. We're going to get there. And I think the free bone graft is going to predominate. And whether that's allograft or iliac crest or distal clavicle or spine of the acromion, these grafts will become more ubiquitous from an arthroscopic standpoint. And I think our fixation, our techniques, our guides, our instrumentation will help make this a, a very seamless procedure arthroscopically and also safe to protect the nerve. And I guess that's what we've all been concerned about. And so I still do most of these open, but I've transitioned to arthroscopic techniques using a combination of either screws, traditional screws, 4-0, cortical or cancella screws using a cortical fashion. I usually use solid screws. I've also used a cerclage type of techniques or uh, cortical button techniques, you know, the buttons and that we use for ACL type of surgery or AC type of surgery, doing AC reconstructions, extrapolated those to use for this. So there's a lot of different fixation options, and I think these will continue to evolve. But at this point, it, it, people's skill set is incredible out there. And I think the ability to do this arthroscopically with less morbidity, less subscap split, just easier to be able to get this graft in and fix it. I've done it both anteriorly and posteriorly now. I know we're talking about anterior bone loss, but it's actually been a great workhorse for a posterior bone loss and also shaping that graft to fit both anterior or posterior. But we still do the majority of them open, but we're uh, doing more and more arthroscopically at this point. And Doc, one thing that, uh, that I really took note of when I was training under you is that the patients that returned, there was an extremely low rate of recurrence. You just from this paper in 2017, we're four, almost five years out. Now that you've been performing these for a long period of time, have your long-term results reflected these midterm results? 
And also, can you comment on how patients describe the feeling of their shoulder uh, in after undergoing a DTA versus that of a ladder J? I remember you talking about how they they have a restored sensation of a normal shoulder, probably because of the restoration of the articular cartilage, but wanted you to comment on, uh, since you've done more than these probably than anybody in the world, just comment on what your patients, how they describe their shoulder uh, after undergoing this procedure. Well, Travis, first of all, I, I do want to say that you were a great fellow and it was an honor to have some small part in uh, training you. You're going and already doing great things and going to lead us into the future in sports medicine. So thank you for coming to Vail and doing such a great job for all of us and, and our patients. So let me start with a second question. DTA versus Latter-J. Very interestingly, I've had a probably eight to 10 patients, certainly less than 10, but right around there that have had bilateral instability. And that's not uncommon for whatever reason. There's an epidemiology associated with that. But I've done ladder J's on one side and DTAs on the other. And it's very interesting when you ask them about what is what. And if you're blinded and go in to the exam room, you have the same incision, you have uh, the same open bank art, the same subscap split, etc. The shoulder generally what they describe it just feels more natural and feels more like their shoulder now i'm i'm not here to overcall that or sugarcoat it too much we have to study that better but that's been the general uh, impression now ladder j is a fantastic surgery i did two last week they're fantastic for a variety of reasons um, but I can tell you that when patients comment, their shoulder feels very natural, very smooth, uh, especially when you put the graft in anatomically, get the glenoid reconstructed anatomically, and then do some capsular uh, repair. So I think that's been the key. Now, we always want longer-term results. When we went back to the Naval Academy and looked up Jay Cox's results, who was there in the 1970s at an average of 26 years after doing a Bristow-Latter-Jay, he either used one screw or two screws. So semantically, he was either a Bristow or a Latter-Jay. Patients did very well from a stability standpoint. In 26 years, their overall instability rate was about 15%. Now, arthritis was always a concern, and we had a pretty – uh, significant, just like Hovelius and others have shown us, right around 30 to 40% beyond 20 years have pretty significant arthritis. Now, whether that's the instability event initially, the initial GLAD lesions, the initial injuries versus post-surgical uh, issues is, is really hard to tell, although Hovelius has taught us quite a bit about graft position, making sure it's flush, not proud. And I think that was my initial thinking on the latter J is why do we have two millimeter difference? That's really hard to tell and manage in surgery. Let's match up the cartilage and even doing it arthroscopically when you're looking in with that four millimeter arthroscope is amazing to be able to see the matchup you can get uh, with a cartilage to cartilage surface. So we're hoping to get a lesser arthritis. We don't know yet, um, but the healing's been good. We are looking at these long-term and hopefully Travis will have some information for you in the next uh, six to 12 months in terms of 10-year follow-up on some of my patients. Deck, one of the the predictors of healing uh, in your article was the discussion of uh, the angle of the graft that you put in, uh, that although there was no change of instability, a, a graft angle of greater than 15 degrees decreased the healing rates. So knowing that you've had to revise both ladder J's and DTA's, 
you've seen the good, bad, and the ugly. Can you help us as uh, as sports surgeons with any comp- any pearls of how to avoid uh, these mistakes and if there are any other tidbits or, or surgical pearls that you have uh, in order to facilitate getting the graft in the right place, making sure that it's flush and avoiding this uh, this graft, I should say almost mismatch of, of being off face approximately uh, less than 15 degrees to make sure that we get a good graft healing interface. Yeah. So Travis, I, I basically stole this from Lauren LaFosse, who when he was going through his arthroscopic Latterge journey, and he talked about his first 100 patients, and he talks about this very freely. Those with greater than 15, 16, 17 degrees of screw angle relative to the face of the glenoid did not have as good an outcomes as those that were less. So when I was looking at this, I said, we have to look at screw angle, see if that makes a difference. And guess what? We, number one, found better healing, uh, probably because the graft was better opposed. It was better mechanically put in. So we found some a little bit better healing when the screws were less than 15 degrees angled to the face of the glenoid. And we also found some better outcomes. Uh, just like LaFosse did with his arthroscopic ladder J. So it's good to see the consistencies there. But what comes into play is if you're doing a primary DTA, and again, I think this at the end of the day is going to be arthroscopic for most of us over the next several years. Once we get the instrumentation and the technique and the fixation worked out is having to deal with the conjoint tendon. I get this question quite a bit is you've got that conjoint in there and how do you relax it? Well, first of all, it just starts with good positioning of the patient, making sure they're in the beach chair, two towels under the medial border of the scapula so that you have good trajectory. And then a good subscap split that's about 2.5 to three centimeters from the top of the subscap so that you can get into the joint and access it well. Um, have I taken the conjoint tendon off? Well, I've peeled it back just a little bit on the lateral side. I don't usually like to take it off, but you can certainly take it off and reattach it or use an anchor right in the base of the coracoid, like a rotator cuff anchor. And I've heard people describe that. So you want to get the graft right. You want to get the angle right. And so managing that conjoint is key and using some of your retractors, a deep two prong. You don't need a big wide anterior retractor. You need just a small one. I actually, at the last second before I put the K-wire in to hold the graft in place, actually take out all retractors and totally relax the Cobell retractor on the humerus so that I can now hold it in the graft with a cob or a graft holder from a commercially available device and then fix it while I'm holding my finger up against the glenoid surface and you're basically doing the finger test to make this thing fit really well and then making sure that entire bone is well opposed up to the face of the glenoid. That's awesome. Uh, now, you had mentioned earlier that you haven't put these in NFL athletes. Your patients that you had even in this study were amongst the the highest, most impactful athletes. You've included Navy SEALs in your treatment, uh, and I know that you've worked on high-end athletes your entire career. So what is your next step? What What is the when, when are you going to be willing to start putting these in that NFL player, in those high-end athletes? What it, what about the procedure is holding you back from doing that uh, and indicating it for those, those uh, athletes? Travis, yeah, I think it's just like anything else where you're pushing the envelope for some of these professional athletes to get back, get back in a timely basis. You know, it's like doing an osteochondral graft in the knee and letting them go back and, and play football. Um, 
it's not that it's zero, but there's a few out there. Um, so you just want to make sure it's right, right for the patient, that the procedure's right. Now, what's interesting, at least my theory, and when we looked at the patients that presented to the NFL Combine and we presented on this and published was there was more than a, almost a 50% hardware complication and other complication rate of Latterjays that presented for evaluation at the NFL Combine. I do think there's something with the conjoint tendon, although the sling effect is wonderful. It's been proven biomechanically by Yamamoto now about 10 years ago in a landmark study that the sling effect really does work, but maybe it works too well. And that conjoint eccentric contraction in contact in football it's different than rugby. In rugby, I don't think we see the same number of complications we do as NFL because it's it's faster. There's pads, and, I, and my theory is the eccentric contraction of that conjoint does lead to a lot of stress across those screws and the graft uh, with or without healing, to be frank with you. So maybe a free graft of, of choice, again, doesn't have to be a distal tibial aisle graft in our even higher end contact athletes may be the way to go and, and let them go back and play and not have to deal with the conjoint. Uh, eccentric contraction. As we say, nothing's for free. So we get the sling effect, but there may be some eccentric load or other loads on that conjoint tendon, especially in football when their hits are occurring at 18 to 22 miles an hour. It's really amazing speed and force that goes across that shoulder joint. Well, Doc, thank you so much for taking the time out of your busy schedule. I know you're gearing up for the academy. Uh, thank you for talking us through your innovative process and how you've been able to bring this from bench to bedside. And you've seen great results in very high-end athletes. Do you have any parting words of wisdom for shoulder surgeons looking to use this as an additional tool to combat glenoid bone loss before we go? Yeah, I, I wish you luck on your glenoid bone loss journey. There's certainly a lot of ways to do this, and it's fun. Our algorithms are getting tighter. They're getting better. But really, it comes down to that patient selection, the individualized discussion. We can do all the measurements we want on the MRI and the CT scans, but there's so many other factors, and having a really good discussion with your patient is key. Don't Don't forget that, and that's always been my best part of this whole journey, and, and really the best part of orthopedics and medicine is that patient discussion relationship and the journey you take with them. So Travis, I want to thank you for your time and dedication to the, to the journal and arthroscopy. It's been a great, great pleasure. Dr. Preventure's classic arthroscopy article entitled distal tibia allograph glenoid reconstruction and recurrent anterior shoulder instability clinical and radiographic outcomes was published in May, 2017 and can currently be accessed at www.arthroscopyjournal.org. Thank you all for joining us and have a great evening. The views expressed in this podcast do not necessarily represent the views of the Arthroscopy Association or the Arthroscopy Journal.